Fueling the Future podcast, where we get to the bottom of issues, trends, and developments in fuels. I'm your host, Tammy Klein, Principal of Future Fuel Strategies and host of this podcast. And today, I'm really pleased to have with us on the podcast, George Heppel, who is the Senior Analyst for CRU. He joined the organization in 2017 within the base metals team. And you say, what does base metals have to do with fueling the future? Well, it's easy. It has to do with batteries and electric vehicles. So George is the editor for CRU's Cobalt, Lithium, and Battery Metal Market Services. George's main analytical responsibilities involve looking at battery metal demand and pricing, which is critical for electric vehicles. And he's also responsible for CRU's long-term automotive and electric vehicle forecast. Following completion of his master's in materials science from Oxford University, George began his career in commodities, working in pricing analysis and forecasting in the sulfur industry. From there, he moved into the minor metals trading sector, specializing in nickel, cobalt, super alloys, alloying additions, and rare earth elements. George has experience working with minor metals in the U.S. and the U.K., and his scientific background and electrochemistry knowledge has been a particular benefit in modeling long-term battery metal demand and helping us all understand where it's going. George, welcome to the program. Thank you for having me, Tommy. Great to have you. So for those listeners, I think we kind of covered this actually in the bio, but for the listeners who may not be familiar, can you talk more about CRU and what you're doing there, especially as it relates to the energy and transport sector? I mean, especially the work that you've been doing on batteries, metals, and electric vehicles. Yes, of course. So uh, CRU is a commodity research company based out of London, but with uh, offices all over the world. We've been going for about 50 years. This is this year is our 50th anniversary, actually. Essentially, what we do is we do uh, long-term commodity research across the metals and mining markets. Uh, so we look at supply, demand, trade flows, you know, price, price assessments, cost assessments for all the major metals that could be steel, aluminium, copper, nickel, cobalt, lithium, platinum, grouped metals, uh, lead and zinc, and everything in between, really. It's a, it's a big company. We do a lot of metals, but my personal specialization within this field is specifically looking at batching metals, mainly looking at cobalt and lithium. Now, of course, if you want to forecast the markets for cobalt and lithium, you need to have a you know, very good understanding, firstly, of where they come from in terms of, uh, sort of supply and mining. So we look very closely at the sort of mining uh, mining industries for these elements, but you also have to know uh, where they're consumed and, and what they're used for and, and how that demand is going to change over time. My main responsibility at CRU is in um, battery metals analysis in terms of looking at the demand. So I'm responsible for um, writing off and editing our, our sort of long-term electric vehicle and battery demand model and trying to understand what the implications are there for uh, commodities, specifically cobalt and lithium. But uh, our view on electric vehicles feeds into almost every commodity we do. I mean, it affects our forecast for aluminium, for steel, it affects our forecast for nickel, even stuff like zinc and lead. And you know, if you think you know, electric vehicles don't have lead acid batteries, you know, it affects our demand for lead, it affects potassium and group metals, it affects um, almost everything we do on the metal side. So it's a very important part of, um, of our research. So for those of us who are on the energy and transport side and, and who know very little about the metals markets. I mean, how does it really work in a nutshell? And and what do those of us who are more used to liquid fuels need, 
you know, to know. Well, in terms of uh, what, what, what you need to know, I mean, you know, the metal markets on, on, on the face of it are quite straightforward. I mean, sort of, you know, what, what we're interested in really is the availability of metals and their price. I mean, I think that's probably what most people are interested in when it comes to uh, sort of looking at energy and transport and their applications. What a metal is, is going to be priced that in the long term is dependent on a few sort of key simple views, although it's a bit more nuanced in practice. I mean, firstly, supply. How much of these metals are we going to be mining and producing over the next few years? And of course, you know, CRU maintains sort of databases of uh, of uh, mining assets, and we have a very good understanding of you know how much metals are being produced. Secondly, it's demand. It's looking at how much you know are we going to need worldwide, and that's linked not only to sort of the electric vehicle transition, but you kind of have to have a complete complete look at a lot of these commodities. You know, that feeds in quite a lot into sort of economic trends and sort of uh, geopolitics and that kind of thing. And finally, cost. You know, how much does it cost to get a metal out of the ground, and how is that changing? That that also affects sort of long-term prices. So, in terms of uh, you know what you need to know, I would say the metal markets are relatively simple, and and there's a lot of uh, parallels which can be drawn between you know the metal markets and the oil markets. Although, I would say that metal markets are perhaps less exposed to geopolitics than the oil markets generally are. But in general, sort of the availability of uh, and the price of a long-term metal will depend largely on sort of global supply, global demand, uh, cost of production, and a few other sort of little bits and pieces sort of sprinkled in. So you said in a recent post, the trade war has hit auto demand hard in China, but even factoring this in, expectations have been far too high. I leave this as food for thought when considering EV sales forecast to 2025. I was very intrigued by that. So what did you mean by that? <laughs> And how do you see the, I, I actually agree with you, how do you see the electric vehicle market evolving in the coming years, not just in China, but, but globally? And then how, do, how, do, how will that affect, you know, cobalt and lithium? I mean, it's, it's really important to try to be as unbiased as possible. And part of removing that bias for me is looking back at what people have said in the past and what expectations were in the past and actually testing how successful they were in achieving what they said they were going to achieve. And that feeds into everything. You know, you could say that about, you know, miners forecasting, you know, crazy profits. You can talk about electric vehicle companies forecasting huge electric vehicle sales and, and everything in between. That what that statement was in reference to was, you know, CRU did a bit of analysis recently where we went back to 2017 and we looked 2017 was kind of when the electric vehicle sort of boom was really beginning to take off. You know, Tesla was doing yeah. extremely well. Electric vehicle sales in China were absolutely booming. And we took the top 11 biggest uh, electric vehicle manufacturers in China, and we looked at their cumulative sales forecast for 2020. Because around that time, around 2017, a lot of these Chinese electric vehicle sales were saying, we're going to be making X a number of cars by 2020. So we took the top 11, and we um, added up all of their ex sales ex expectations for 2020. And it came to 4.2 million cars, which was a 4.2 million electric vehicles is a huge number. I think at the time, back in 2017, I think, and you know, uh, annual sales about 800,000. So the idea was going to grow to 4.2 was just uh, was an extraordinary forecast, and that hasn't materialised. I mean, fast forward to today, and are we going to see 4.2 million electric vehicles sold in China next year? Well, no. In fact, Chinese government forecasts Chinese government target is 2 million. And um, a lot of people think it's going to be a lot less than that. I think, you know, on average, people are sort of, you know, torn between 1.3 and 1.7 as the general 
excuse. So the point I'm trying to make here is that, you know, in the past we had huge expectations for electric vehicle sales and they just haven't materialized in practice. And we need to remember that it's really important having that hindsight and having an understanding of, of what's been forecast in the future when you're trying to understand what electric vehicle sales are going to be like in 2025, because you need to have, you need to understand that bias in the market. So if someone says that EV sales are going to reach 10 million in 2025, bearing in mind they're 2 million in today, you need to sort of factor in the potential that there is a little bit of sort of uh, upward bias on that. And you know, personally, when I'm looking at electric vehicle sales uh, over the next sort of like five to 10 years, the key question that I ask myself, and this is if anyone wants to really try to understand how many electric vehicles are going to be made um, over the next five to 10 years, or how, how many electric vehicles are going to be sold rather, the key question you have to ask yourself is who is going to make them? That is mm. the key question, because I, I do not deny that there is a huge demand for electric vehicles at the moment. You know, If you want to go out and buy a Tesla or a Nissan or a Nissan Leaf or anything, you have, you know, you have huge waiting lists, I think, you know, the Volkswagen ID3 has has mm. sold extremely well, and they haven't even started making them yet. The demand is there. I think 10 million cars by 2025. The demand is there, but is the manufacturing capacity there? And I don't think it will be. I think 2025 we have more conservative forecasts for EV sales based on expectations of you know, what what companies are going to to make as opposed to what we think demand is going to be. If that makes sense. For me, I think the the 1.3 or the the, the lower end, um, at least as it respects China, is probably more realistic. Also, given the restructuring of the subsidies, and I know you've commented on that. What's your view of that in light of uh, in light of what the government has done this year? So, I think most people expected government subsidies to decline in China this year. I think most people were expecting around a 40% decline, but in fact, in actual fact, what we saw was more like. 55, 60%. It was a huge decline. And I don't think people realized what, how, I don't think people appreciated how big of an effect that was going to have on EV sales in China. For context, I think most people are expecting Chinese EV sales this year to be 1.3. So if EV sales next year are 1.3 as well, that implies the market's, you know, flattened off a little bit, which is uh, probably a little bit concerning for uh, people who are sort of looking at the electric vehicle market closely. I think. Nonetheless, I do think the Chinese government is behind EVs. I think electric vehicles represent so many opportunities for for the Chinese government as a whole. You know, firstly, it, it, it's a way of reducing smog in major cities, which has been a key complaint of um, of the Chinese yeah. populace in the last couple of years. And secondly, it's an industry which they can really push because you know China, despite being the biggest automotive market in the world, it doesn't really have much penetration when it comes to domestic brands like the. the yeah, Hasn't been real sold in China are Western brands. Yes, right. Sorry? Mm-hmm. No, I was just going to say, yeah. you know, they haven't been very successful in manufacturing an, an internal combustion engine vehicle. I mean, and they're they're more complicated to engineer and to manufacture and to produce, much more so than an, an electric vehicle. So I, I agree with you. I mean, this is an opportunity for the government to create, support, and launch an industry that will benefit the country, but also gives them a, a, a foothold, a toehold in a space globally that they haven't really been able to play in. Absolutely. I mean, there's so much, I mean, electric vehicles are so much simpler than than, than internal combustion engines. I mean, I, li- I like to say that, you know, obviously there's a lot of clever software that goes into it, but, you know, in terms of the actual hardware involved in getting you from A to B, they're basically just oversized golf buggies. You know, you, you need some motors, 
you need a gigantic battery and you need you know everything else is um you know relatively straightforward which means that it represents a huge opportunity for for chinese industry as you said i mean I often wonder if, uh, you know, when you look at the automotive market going back over the last century, 1960s and 70s was really characterized by um, you know, Japanese brands taking over the Western market. And then we saw the same happening with uh, Kia and Hyundai in like, the 90s and noughties. And I do wonder if, you know, the 2020s and 2030s will be the decades that Chinese electric vehicles, you know, cheap Chinese electric vehicles will begin to sort of really gain a foothold in in the West. And, you know, I don't think they're ready yet. I think you know, I think the likes of BYD and uh, um, and, and yeah, and, and Geely and BAIC and everyone else, I, I think they probably need to hire a few uh, French and Italian designers to make their cars a bit more <laughs> palatable for Western consumers. Yeah, yeah. But, but I think they have the price point. I really do. Um, and they certainly have the technology from a battery side. You know, I, 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 don't, I, I don't see why it couldn't happen. What happens if we look more at lithium and cobalt? If Electric vehicles, you know, let's say there is no 1.3. The lower figure in China isn't reached and the market takes off more slowly uh, in Europe. And certainly, you know, in in the U.S., um, you know, I've done my own sort of analysis and forecast. And given our current political situation there, I mean, the, the politics are connected to the policy, which is connected to the market. And really beyond the tax credit in the U.S., I mean, we're not there. <laughs> we have no vision <laughs> right now. Political structure that really is kind of like China, you know, with its new energy vehicle policy and all of that. So let's say that the markets, you know, don't take off or they're much more uh, slow than some analysts uh, indicate. What happens in the lithium and, and cobalt market in that event? And Conversely, you know, if sales expectations are met, the manufacturing capacity is 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 put in, and consumers really take to the to the technology in China, in Europe, and in other parts of the West, U.S., Canada, so on and so forth. So then, what happens conversely if there really is a huge demand? And how does the industry deal with that on both sides? I would say that CIE's base case is somewhere in the middle. Although we do look at uh, you know both possibilities, I think I think uh, you know in in general our our electric vehicle forecasts are a little bit more conservative than uh, what what sort of other people are saying in the market. But we still have it growing extremely fast. Going to your first scenario, you know, what what happens if you know the electric vehicle market you know doesn't doesn't rate, you know increase as fast as we expect it to? Naturally, that's going to have a big effect on on lithium and cobalt. Lithium and cobalt are very, you know, give the appearance of very well supplied markets at the moment because you know, you've you've probably been sort of tracking the the, the price uh, swings in lithium and cobalt over the last couple of years. You know, that's mm-hmm. the, that that price uh, boom and bust cycle has stimulated a huge amount of new supply into the market in expectation of future demand. So if that demand doesn't materialise over the next couple of years, you know, I think we could expect prices of these commodities to probably remain pretty pretty bearish really over the next few years. Certainly for lithium, I mean, co- cobalt's a little bit more complicated because the cobalt market is sort of split between the metal market and the chemical market, and there are a few different applications in, involved. And uh, the other thing about the cobalt market is you always have the specs of the DRC hanging over it. You know, we, we never really know what's going to happen to supply from the DRC, really. There's a lot of risks involved. But in general, you know, we could expect prices to remain pretty low over the next few years if electric vehicles don't, don't rise as people are expecting. And I think we'd probably see a few mines, especially in, in Australia. I think we'd probably see a few, uh, maybe not Australia, but we'd definitely see a few high-cost um, lithium mines shutting down as well. 
you know, to the other to the other side of the argument, which is, you know, what if electric vehicles do go to 10 million a year or you know, 12 million a year or or even higher by 2025? You know, I think that would have serious repercussions for the availability of these markets, but uh, of the availability of cobalt and lithium, where we could potentially see bottlenecks. But one thing I would say is that everyone always underestimates how quickly new supply of these elements can come online. You know, I remember before the lithium price boom, people were saying that, oh, you know, it takes five years to bring a lithium mine online. You know, there's going to be a shortage of spodumene. There's not going to be enough material. In the actual fact, we saw six lithium mines opening up in Australia alone in the space of three years. So what I would say is that if we do see sudden uh, increases in commodity demand, I think the market can react to that. But another way that we might see change, especially on the cobalt side, you know, if we do see a sudden shortage of cobalt, you know, I think that could stimulate a change to battery chemistries as well. So not one one thing to remember is that not all battery chemistries require cobalt. They require different amounts depending on what you're doing. There's always a toss up between different battery designs and that kind of thing. But there are battery chemistries which contain zero cobalt and they have yeah. a much lower energy density. So they have a lower range as a result, but they're much cheaper and you're not as exposed to commodity prices. So, And that's called LFP, that battery chemistry. I think if we did see real concerns around the shortage of cobalt due to massive demand in electric vehicles, I think we could see people embracing LFP as a sort of long-term battery chemistry, which you know, gives lower range, but you know, it means you're not exposed to cobalt and nickel as well. It doesn't contain any nickel. That does sort of dovetail into the next question I wanted to ask you, which is how how do you expect batteries to evolve over the next five to 10 years? And, are, you know, are you watching the, the technologies and what are you what are you seeing out there? I mean, I'm watching them as well, but I, I'm interested to hear how you how you view that evolution. Yeah, I mean, we, we keep eye on all the major sort of uh, battery trends in terms of uh, new research and new technology. We keep a very close eye on what the main sort of uh, battery research groups are doing worldwide and, and what they're publishing. We read what John B. Goodenough's doing. We read what Jeff Dan's doing. You know, we keep a very close eye on these. These are like some of the key uh, scientists in the in the lithium ion battery world. But in general, we don't really see any major shifts in battery chemistry. Certainly not over the next five years, and I would I would I wouldn't expect over the next ten years either. The electric vehicle industry seems to have almost entirely sort of uh, honed in on one particular battery chemistry, which is called NMC, nickel manganese mm-hmm. cobalt, and those are the constituents of the cathode in the uh, in the battery. And you know, pretty much all of the gigafactory announcements and the uh, capacity expansions we're seeing over the next ten years are in NMC. Um, you know, we're seeing companies like Tesla, which have traditionally used other chemistries like NCA. Uh, which is nickel, cobalt, aluminium, they are now shifting to NMC. So Tesla will be using NMC for all vehicles manufactured in Shanghai, for example. And I think it's just generally the, the way the industry is going. And you know, right now, you know, the, the sort of uh, the holy trinity of, of, battery, of, of battery chemistry really is um, affordability. You know, how cheap is it? Performance, you know, how much range can you get out of them? And scalability, fundamentally, you know, can you make huge quantities of this material? Can you increase scale of manufacturing? And right now, there's not really anything which beats NMC in, in either of these, you know, in, many, in these three categories. Of course, yeah, there are other considerations like safety and uh, miniaturization in the case of portable electronics and that kind of thing. But right now, NMC seems to be here to stay. As I said before, another battery chemistry, which is a possibility, is um, LFP, 
Mm-hmm. LFP is a little bit old fashioned now. I mean, LFP was traditionally used in like the budget Chinese electric vehicle market. It's, it's the kind of thing you you see like uh, cheap cheap Chinese electric vehicles that only have a range of let's say 100 miles or, or even less. It's the sort of thing that they would use. But it does have significant cost advantages because it doesn't contain any cobalt or any nickel at all. It's a lot safer. It has a much longer cycle life as well. And it's you know it's got a host of other advantages which could potentially mean that it's uh, it could be it could gain market share from NMC. You know the key question really is cost versus range. I think that's the key question in the electric vehicle sector: is cost versus range. So if you if you want a higher range, you'll pay a higher cost and use an NMC-based battery. And if you don't care as much about range and you want something quite budget, then you'll use an LFP-based uh, battery chemistry. You know we had uh, uh, an event in London a few weeks ago, LME Week, London London Metal London Metals Exchange Week, which is one of the biggest uh, sort of weeks of the year in the in the metals calendar. And CRU holds a regular event called the CRU Breakfast, which is where we have uh, loads of talks and meetings and conferences and, and, and that kind of thing. And I actually did a presentation. We, we polled, I think there were about 200 people in the room. We, we polled them. We gave them two cars. We, one, one, is, one was a high-range, high-cost vehicle. I think it was like $30,000, $40,000 with a range of like 300 miles, 300 miles or something like that. And the, the mm-hmm. other one was like $15,000 with a range of like 100, 150 miles. And we said to them, you know, which one of these would suit your needs most? And I was expecting everyone to go for the high range one. And in fact, it was like 42% of the audience actually preferred the low range vehicle, which I was very surprised by. Because we hear people saying a lot, the issues of range anxiety, we hear people talking about how you can't buy electric, you know, people aren't going to buy electric vehicles because they haven't got enough range. But in actual fact, it suggested that it maybe, maybe wasn't as big a deal as people made out. So yeah, in terms of where the market's going on battery chemistries, I don't see any change to the norm really. I think uh, NMC is here to stay really uh, in the sort of uh, high-range electric vehicle market. I think sort of Volkswagen ID3s and uh, Teslas and that kind of thing. But I do think that there is a potential market for a you know, cheap, low-range, you know, very cheap, low-range uh, electric vehicle using LFP. And you know, when we were talking earlier about the Chinese potentially uh, gaining market share in, in the West, I think that that would be the battery chemistry that they would use. It's interesting the way that you're talking about this because, yeah, you know, there'll be a lot of different models in all of these countries, different types of range, and hopefully at at different cost points. And it'll be interesting to see how consumers respond. I mean, if you want, because, you know, one of the things that comes out a lot is, oh, but the cost of vehicles, they're going to decline because the, the battery chemistry is going to get cheaper. And I've always wondered, you know, because battery costs have declined, but not necessarily <laughs> the vehicle prices. So it'll be interesting to see, you know, how that in, how that ends up playing out, you know, different types of batteries, different types of vehicles at different cost points and seeing what or if, with which ones consumers go for, if they go for, for them at all. But it's interesting the way that you're describing that with the different with the different battery chemistries. Yeah, I mean, I, I, it's horses for courses at the end of the day. You know, not everyone needs a range of 600 miles on a daily basis. You know, if you only if you only use your car, if you if you're a two car household, for example, and you only you have a small car which you only use for commuting daily and that kind of thing. I mean, do you need more than yeah. you know, 150 miles range? I mean, I, I'm inclined to say you probably don't. And if it's going to be significantly cheaper than the alternative, then I would say it will probably end up being a no-brainer for most two-car households and even some one-car households, depending on what their needs are. But uh, just get, going back to what you're saying about 
battery costs have come down, but cars haven't come down as car costs haven't come down as much. I think you make a really important point because mm-hmm. what people forget on on when it comes to electric vehicle costs is I think the fundamental thing which is stopping electric vehicles from dropping in cost right now is um, scale of manufacture. It really yeah. is. It's you know the reason the reason why um, you know the Ford F one fifty is affordable, and the reason why in the in the uh, in the UK like uh, the well you had the Toyota Corolla in in uh, in the USA as well. But uh, the reason why the Toyota Corolla or the VW Golf or these cars are very cheap is because they're made on such gigantic scales. And you know, mm-hmm. really, the issue is that right now there's only one car in the world where more than a hundred thousand. Well, there's only one electric vehicle in the world where more than a hundred thousand are made a year, and that's the Tesla Model Three. And even that's fifty thousand dollars a year, I think. Uh, fifty thousand yeah, yeah. dollars uh, sticker price or something like that. So it really, it really goes to show. I think the main issue with uh, electric vehicles right now is is an issue really of manufacturing scale. I think when we get to the point where companies like VW Group are making as many VW ID threes as they're making VW Golfs, the costs is going to come down a huge amount. But if they continue to be made in small batches of a few tens of thousands on the same manufacturing lines as uh, existing internal combustion engine cars, then it's, you, you know, you're not going to see uh, as rapid a, a fall in, in costs, really. So the last question I wanted to ask you is, how does the car and, uh, and the metals industry counter the concerns about the sustainability of mining lithium and cobalt? And, you know, especially, I mean, the things that are, are coming out in the public domain, you know, to the, to the average person, American, European, what have you, is, you know, all the, the cressure, and my French is <laughs> terrible, the cressure mining in the Democratic Republic of Congo. I mean, you know, how does the industry, how is the industry dealing with that? Is that, um, how real is it? Because you're covering these markets. So, you know, how, how real is that? Is it is it overblown in the media? Is it not? You know, what does the industry sort of do about that, especially as, you know, no matter what happens, whether it's electric vehicles or iPhones or wind turbines or whatever, you know, our dependence on these metals, you know, isn't going away any anytime soon. Yeah, and no, it's, it's a really good point. It's a very topical point. I mean, um, I think, you know, the, the issue of autism mining in the DRC wasn't really realized until I think it was Amnesty put out a report, Amnesty International put out a report right. on it back in 2016, I think, and it all kind of went off from there. And that's, you know, then the price of cobalt began to rocket up and people realized that electric vehicles were exposed to it and that kind of thing. There are a few ways that car companies are kind of looking at exposure, you know, avoiding their exposure to these, uh, you know, to these practices. But I can only really think off the top of my head of two examples of car companies who've actually, who have actually sort of managed to sort of put their money where their mouth is rather. First one is BMW and BMW came out uh, into the market uh, around May, May May this year and announced that they were going to buy all of their metal, all of their cobalt from two operations. First one's called CTT in Morocco and the second one is called uh, Murin Murin in Australia. Neither of which are involved in artisanal mining at all. All artisanal mining is in the DRC and to, the, to a lesser extent in Zambia. Which means that they basically are not exposed at all to the DRC or to mining practices. Uh, the second example is is Tesla. I think Elon Musk very famously tweeted back in 2017 that they were going to get all of their cobalt from North America, and then the year after, I think he said that the next generation of cars made by Tesla wouldn't contain any cobalt at all. Uh, I'll leave it to you to 
guess as to whether that's feasible <laughs> or not, but uh, I think probably not. Yeah, the point is they're at least looking at it. And in fact, Tesla get their batteries from Panasonic, which doesn't yeah. source cobalt from the DRC at all. So they're not concerned as well. The, the issue really is, firstly, it's one of sort of education on the issue of cobalt, uh, because not all cobalt from the DRC is artisanal. And in fact, there are a number of projects you can you can get cobalt from in the DRC, which are 100% guaranteed non-artisanal. There's, there's uh, about three or four mines which produce massive quantities of cobalt where you can source non-artisanal uh, cobalt. And the other thing as well is that not all artisanal cobalt is inherently you know, unethical. There are ways of, you know, artisanal mining isn't just something that's found in cobalt. You know, it's found in, in coltan and gold and precious gemstones and diamonds and you know, all that kind of thing. And, you know, it's found across the mining industry and it's, it's, it's done, you know, in, in the worst cases. It's done, it's mined by children and it's, um, you know, it, it can be sort of, uh, sort of controlled by warlords and that kind of thing. So as the example yeah. of coltan a few you know, decades ago. But in the best cases, it's it's a way of putting money in the hands of people with really no options available to them, and something and fair, you know, people who've been doing point. it for generations. Yeah, yeah so yeah. there are ways of doing it, and in fact, you know, I think I think the rhetoric around artisanal mining in the DRC has changed over the last when it first came to light in 2017, 2016. Everyone was like, no, we don't want any part of this at all whatsoever. I was getting calls at the time from companies who wanted non-DRC cobalt. And fast forward to 2019, I think people are a little bit more open to, you know, working a bit more closely with sort of artisanal projects, trying to work out a way of policing artisanal projects and tracking it. You know, you may have heard a lot, a lot more sort of about blockchain projects, cobalt blockchains working yeah. in, in the DR. Um, a lot of major OEMs and tech companies have signed on to, um, you know, onto schemes like that in the DRC. And, and it seems to more be a case of, instead of just saying, we're going to avoid artisanal entirely and we're not going to have any part of it at all. People are sort of realizing that it's, it is an important part of the cobalt supply chain and they're trying to work out how to go around doing it in an ethical and sustainable way. But there's so much that still needs to be done in the space. There really is. And, you know, we, we, we keep tracking it just to sort of keep an eye on what's going on, really. How much of the, and you might have said this already, I don't, I don't think so, but do you have a, like a percentage of how much actually is artisanal? Yeah, so uh, it, it, varies, it varies with prices, actually. The interesting thing about the cobalt market is that the amount of artisanal mining is directly correlated with the price of cobalt. It's kind of the thing which mm. balances the market. You know, if, if there's a shortage of cobalt and the price skyrockets, as we saw in 2018, what happens is that artisanal mining massively increases volume and then that brings the price down. So it's quite an important means of, of, of keeping the world supplied with cobalt. In the years leading up to the cobalt boom in 2016, uh, the price of co- uh, you know, the, um, the amount of artisanal mining volume every year was about 6,500 tons or something. It really wasn't very much at all. But then mm-hmm. we saw that grow to about 15,000 tons in 2017. And then it went to mm. about 25,000 tons in 2019. So in the space of two years, it, it quadrupled in size. And this was in a market of about 125,000 tons at the time. So at its peak, at its peak in 2018, artisanal mining was responsible for about 20% of global output. Fast forward to now, prices have come down quite a lot. And as a result, artisanal mining has come down quite a lot. I think currently it's about 15,000 tons, which would be, it would be around uh, 15%, I think, if my math is correct, of a market size of 130,000 tons or around you know, 10 to 15%. So still a good chunk but not as much as it was uh, at its heyday in 2018. All right, that's the show. 
Thanks for listening. George, I want to thank you so much for being on the show today. It was a pleasure to have you and talk about these topics. And if you're looking for more information on future fuels issues and developments, sign up for my free biweekly newsletter at futurefuelstrategies.com. Thanks again. 